If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll get there in just a moment. Today we're starting a new series called Fearless, and Fearless is all about us deciding not to be succumb or to succumb to the fears of this world. We talk about fear uh, probably once a year, and maybe depending on the church calendar and how it works out, maybe just six months apart from each other, uh, depending on, again, when, when and where we station these sermon series. You might ask, why do you talk about fear? Like, isn't that a negative thing? Well, sure, it's a negative thing. But it's a huge positive if we can learn to eradicate fear from our life, if we can learn not to be strangled by fear. If you look up uh, very popular search terms on YouTube or on Google, fear, and particularly certain types of fear, are, are towards the top of the list. People are searching for ways to overcome fear. Right now, there's a huge scare movement, a huge fear movement that the Momo challenge, right? If, you're, if you have kids at all, you've probably seen some of the headlines about it. Uh, they're trying to figure out if it's fake or if it's real. Uh, I'm not sure either way, but it's definitely a scary image and a scary figure. I was gonna put the picture up on the screen, but I didn't do that, I didn't wanna freak anyone out. If you haven't seen it, you don't need to necessarily Google it to see what it is, but it's this kind of ghoulish figure of a girl with these really big uh, oversized eyes and this big oversized smile, this real stringy hair. And it's actually a sculpture uh, that a woman did who, um, who does sculptures for like horror films and things of that nature. And it's a sculpture that's supposed to actually scare you. That's the intent is to, to bring fear into people's lives. And now it's taken on kind of a life of its own through the internet. But the reality is there are things out there to fear. The Bible says fear not over and over and over and over again, depending on how you parse it out. It says fear not up to 365 times. You could say it says that for every day of the year or as low as about 120 sometimes, uh, depending again, how you parse out those words, fear not. Well, if the Bible says to fear not, I'm analytical enough to think that if God is saying not to fear, there's probably something that is reasonable to fear over. He's not saying that there isn't a reasonable nature to fear. He's saying don't succumb to fear. See, I think for a lot of us, we think we hear the idea of fear not or fear less or fear is a liar. And we think, well, good Lord, there, there's so many things out there to fear. You, you know, how, how, do you, how, do you ever get past, how do you ever get past the feelings of fear? Well, I don't know that you get past them, but you learn how to overcome them. I don't know that the Bible ever tells us that you're just gonna get past things, that you're just not going to have to deal with it. When I used to work out a lot, work out with weights and strength train a lot, you know, guys would always be kind of impressed at different amounts of weight that I could lift. And I was working out one time with about 315 pounds and I'm you know, doing a couple reps there. And the guys were like, oh man, that's a lot of weight. And they're like, man, does it get lighter? And I looked at him like, no, it never gets lighter. 200 pounds is 200 pounds, no matter how much weight you can push off your chest. 300 pounds is 300 pounds, no matter how, much, how many times you get under the bar, it always is going to feel like 300 pounds. You just know you're not gonna die once you are under the weight. See, that's the way fear works in our life. We get fearful of things, moments, and we get fearful of people, we get fearful of interactions, and we think, it's the first time we've ever faced, oh, good Lord, I might die. And then we face it over and over and over again, and we realize, well, I'm not gonna die, and it doesn't mean that I'm not fearful, or that there isn't a reason to fear, but I know this isn't gonna take me out. And so the reality is we have to learn to to come up to fear, to face fear head on. And the first fear we're gonna talk about is the one today, the fear of rejection. 
Everybody deals with the fear of rejection. There isn't one person on planet Earth that doesn't have an opportunity to deal with the fear of rejection. First Timothy chapter one and verse seven says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. That we as um, human persons are designed of God not to succumb to fear, but that God has given us a sense of power of love and a sound mind. Stability in our mind, not to allow the mind to run off into rabbit trails and to chase down fears that aren't even real fears. A sense of power, well-being, or stability, and a sense of love that we care and we know that we are cared for and others care for us. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. Anytime fear comes, it's not of God. No matter how it comes, it's not of God. We all have within us this fight or flight mechanism. When we're faced with something that we fear, there are, are chemicals that kick off in our brain and in our body, and, and they cause us to wanna to do one of two things, fight or flight. And in the course of even feeling rejection, we might wanna fight those fears of rejection and fight that person who's rejecting us, or we might wanna turn tail and run. But we all are faced with the opportunity on how we're going to react to different fears. If I have to be, excuse me, if I have to be perfectly honest, much of my life at different points in times has been consumed with the idea of approval. I wanna be approved of. The only reason I was ever in the gym bench pressing and throwing around a lot of weight was because I wanted to be approved of initially. I learned to like it, I learned to really enjoy myself, but initially it was about being approved of. Those kind of, that jock group in high school that played football together and also sports teams together, I wanted to be a part of that group. So I worked really hard to get on the football team and I worked really hard to keep a position and I worked really hard to memorize all the plays. I wasn't really that good, I wasn't very fast. I blamed my parents and my genetics for the fact that I'm not very fast. My mom has two left feet and my dad has two right feet. <laughs> neither, of them work well, neither of them work well together. But I blame my parents for my genetics and my kids are probably gonna blame Lori and I for their genetics. Not overly, not overly uh, uh, capable in sports, but I knew that if I worked hard enough, I could likely get a, a place on the team. And I wanted to be approved of like many of us do, we wanna be approved of. And so I remember sitting there running wind sprints at the end of practice and you know, you're dog tired at the end of a long day of practice and football and you're just doing everything you can to make it through to the day. And I'm standing next to the kid who I, I have to beat in order to win the position that I wanna play. And he's a good guy, but I knew that I had to beat him in order to really keep my position. So every sprint we, we ran, I just looked at him and thought, I'm gonna beat you. I'm gonna beat you, I don't care how bad it hurts, I don't care how bad I'm sucking wind, I don't care how bad my lungs are burning, I'm gonna beat you. And every stride, I just intentionally tried to outpace him one foot after the other. It's the only reason I kept my position. I stood next to him and beat him every time we ran. And today, you know, I can say that all of that, all that pushing, all that hard, that straining and striving, all of that was just to be accepted by him. It wasn't because I looked at him as an adversary, it was just to be accepted by this kid next to me. That he would look at my hard work and my effort and, and the ability that I had on the field and say, listen, you're, you're worthy to be part of our group. So many of us deal with this issue of acceptance. So many of us deal with this issue of rejection. It's hard at times to really put a face and a name to it. Sometimes we go for a better job and it's not really because we wanna upgrade ourselves, it's because we wanna keep up with the Joneses. 
And Jim Jones or whoever next door to us got a new job, and of course you want to you make more money than he does because you want to stay in his group of accepted peers. Maybe you level up in the automobile you're driving or the house that you live in, not because you need it, but because you want to be more accepted by a different group of people. Maybe, maybe you, you break off some relationships in your life, not because they're bad, but because you want to be accepted by a different group. And we'll lie to ourselves and say, well, I've just outgrown that friend's group. We'll lie to ourselves and say, you know what? I want to be responsible and I want to level up in my career because it's the right thing to do for my family. And in our core, we find out it's really all about acceptance. It's really all about a fear of approval, whose approval we're seeking. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 20, or, or chapter 29 and verse 25 says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. The fear of man is, in, in this verse, in, in this context, is really about the fear of what people think about you. That if you fear what people think about you, it will be a snare. Eventually, it will trap you. Eventually, it will keep you stagnant. Eventually, the fear of man will be something that feels hard to fight out of a cage that you can't seem to break out of. There are two major rejection traps we're gonna talk about this morning. And the first one is overly starved for attention. We live, in a, we live in a culture that's overly starved for attention. You can get on Facebook and, and with the right effort, you can create a massive following. And in that massive following, you look like you have been accepted. People liking your posts, people commenting, people following you back. Sometimes for many of us, it's really not about necessarily the amount of people, it's just the right person. You ever put that Facebook post out there and you scroll and then you refresh and you scroll and you refresh and you scroll just to make sure the right person's liked it? Just to make sure the right person's commented? I know no one's ever done that in this room. Maybe, maybe we take it too far and, and we allow people to have influence in our lives that they shouldn't have. We become overly starved for approval. The, the world around us makes it easy to gain entrance and access at different levels, but then we feel like we've got to attain another level, and we feel like we've got to attain another level, and we feel like we've got to connect with another group of people, and we feel like we've got to be part of this peer group or that peer group, and it feels like high school all over again, where we're trying to gain this sense of approval. In the Old Testament, we saw a guy who had the opportunity to be one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had, if you're very familiar with the kings of Israel, Saul was still talked about as one of their great kings, but he could have been the greatest. Saul had a problem though. He was trapped. He was overstarved for attention. Paul, or I'm sorry, Saul uh, got caught up in this idea that he would grow and expand God's kingdom by connecting with rival kingdoms through marriage. That he would marry this girl and he would marry that girl and he would marry this girl and he would marry that girl and he amassed a large group of wives. First of all, that's crazy nuts. For the guy that's supposed to be the wisest king in all of Israel, that's crazy nuts. I don't know what he was thinking. One is enough, Jesus. I can't figure out one woman. You tried a couple, anyway. But in his pursuit to bring these kingdoms together, in his pursuit to be accepted by the world, one marriage after one marriage after one marriage. And these wives would come to him and say, husband, dear husband, I need something from you. 
I need my culture to be reflected in your kingdom. And he would give in. And then another woman would come and say, husband, dear husband, I need our culture to be reflected in your kingdom. And Saul gave in to one after another, after another of his wives. And his intents were good, right? He wanted them all to feel part of the kingdom. But as he gave bits and pieces of the culture away, the culture that God had intended for his people to live under, the cultural standards that God had intended for him as king to uphold began to deteriorate, began to erode. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 24, we read how he was paralyzed by this fear of rejection, that this great weakness over his life actually caused him to do the wrong thing. And he says it this way, I've sinned. I have violated the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. That his fear of rejection, his overly starved motives for rejection, for approval, brought him to a point where he did exactly the wrong thing. Not because he had bad motives intentionally, <clears throat> not because he had a bad heart, but because he couldn't get over this idea of this need for approval. How often do we do that? How often in our everyday lives do we say, you know what, just, just let them have what they want. I need to be approved by them, so just, just give in and let them have the, what they want. Sometimes parents do this with their kids, and it's the number one thing that messes up children is their teenagers. I see it all the time with, their, with these parents. When I was a youth pastor and as a pastor, I want my kids to like me. I want my kids to be my friend. You're a parent, you're not their friend. I don't care if they hate you and tell you, as long as you're guiding them down the right path, don't let the fear of approval mess up your parenting trajectory. My son has told me he hates me. And the next minute, he's told me how much he loves me. He's a child. Don't allow a child to manipulate to manipulate your hand as a parent. I see this many times in spousal arrangements where one spouse will manipulate the other one's need for approval by saying, if you don't get this for me, if you don't do this for me, I'm not gonna talk to you. If you don't, if you don't do this, what I've asked from you, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna hug you, I'm not gonna hold you, I'm not gonna show intimacy towards you. All of these things are just preying on someone's need for approval preying on their need for acceptance. It's wrong to do, but it's, it's also more wrong for the person that's codependent, for them to allow themselves to be manipulated at that level. We'll get into that in a moment. Approval addicts have an inability to confront. If you're honestly an approval addict, you have an inability to confront hard situations. When we were in ministry in Pittsburgh and we had a large youth group that we were overseeing, about 70 some odd volunteers, and we had break off small groups uh, during our midweek service. And I had a group of college students that were running a bunch of our small groups. And we had given them the curriculum and how to run a small group, and we expected them to apply these standards. A bunch of them got together and said, we don't like this, we're gonna do it our own way. And I needed their approval, because these were the cool kids. These were the kids that were, man, when they were on campus, all of our teenagers wanted to flock to them and talk to them and, and really get to know them. They were, they were just really cool hipster kids, man. So I felt like I needed their approval for the program. I didn't say anything right away. It got so bad that there were kids hanging out in, 
they were hanging out in hallways, they were hanging out in bathrooms, they were hanging out in closets. And I'm looking at this mess that just kind of spilled out. And I'm thinking, what went wrong? I'm getting mad and frustrated, so I'd stomp through the hallways and hope they saw my frustration and would fix the issue. Stomping along like some little child, didn't do anything. Eventually, I had to confront the issue. I had to bring in this group of kids, teenage or, or, or 20-somethings, and say, listen, you're not doing what I asked. Do what I ask or don't be a part of the program. I had to get really strict with them. Now, the facts are that when someone's an approval addict and they have a failure to confront, their inward motivation is usually anger and resentment. Mine was at the moment. But I knew I had to, conf I knew I had to confront these kids. I confronted them probably a little harsher than I should have. I probably didn't use the most kind words. In fact, one of them said, you can't fire volunteers. I said, the heck I can't. You're fired. Turned into my Donald Trump mode, you know. You're fired. Get out of here. I'll tell you what, it was the worst thing. It was one of the best and worst moments in ministry. I learned an important lesson that you have to confront things up front, even though you might lose someone's approval in the short term, you have to confront it or the problem just grows and compounds and grows and compounds. But I also learned that if you ignore it for fear of approval, you are risking greater disapproval later on. That if you'll just confront it up front, the approval issue will take care of itself. But if you wait and wait and wait, folks get in their head, what did I do wrong and why are you so mad? And all that comes out is your anger and resentment and you don't really fix the problem. And the next point here is those, those who have a fear of rejection, those who are seeking approval, come to a moment where they're overly cautious. The Bible in Proverbs chapter 18 and, or 28 and verse 14 says, blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. In John, Jesus's words, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 42 and 43 says, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess the faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved praises of men more than the praises of God. This is Jesus speaking to a group of believers, so-called believers. They wouldn't stick to calling themselves Christians followers of the way, followers of the Messiah. They wouldn't stick to it because they were afraid of what the religious elite might say. That the religious elite might say, listen, you're not allowed in the synagogue anymore. Your old traditional ways of doing religion, you're cut off. You want the new guy, go follow the new guy. And they were fearful and they were afraid. They were afraid that this level of acceptance would be taken away from them. Many of us are fearful to move forward, we're overly cautious. We don't jump into the pool when God says go. We don't do what he says to do the moment he says to do it. We don't shout to the heavens and proclaim exactly what God's called us to. Why? Well, we wanna put our tiptoes in first. We get a little overly cautious. Are they gonna still accept me? Will they still accept me for who I am? Will they still accept me the way they used to when they find out my life changed? Will they still accept me for who I am when they find out that I'm this Christian. In fact, what Jesus is pointing to is there's an old set of religious rules. Even if you aren't a religious person, there's an old set of religious rules that tends to run our lives. And what happens oftentimes are these rituals, these ritual patterns, right? If you're a bar hopper, you know you go from whatever day the bar is open 
you're there. You're sitting in your seat. It's kind of that hey norm moment. You walk in, everybody knows your name. You sit down in your seat, you throw some peanuts in the back of your throat, drink a few beers, watch a game. And it becomes a pattern, a ritual, a religious pattern. And sometimes people come to Christ and they're afraid to break off that old religious pattern, even though it's far from God. They're afraid to break it off because they're afraid of the rejection that follows. They're afraid of what people will say about them. They're afraid that they won't be accepted back into the fold and to the family. They're overly cautious to talk about their life change. Maybe it's in your everyday life, in your everyday moments at work. You're afraid to walk away from the dirty jokes after you've accepted Jesus because you know, you don't want them to think you're too crazy. You don't want them to think you're too religious. Maybe it's the point where we dumb down the gospel. We get to a point where we say, you know what? Just as long as you have a, a, a level of spirituality, God loves everybody. Or maybe we get to a point where we've so watered the gospel down, we say, you know what? It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your issues. Jesus loves everybody. And it sounds good and it's true to an extent, but it diminishes the reality of the gospel. The gospel still says that the only way to God, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. That if you don't find Jesus as your savior, you ain't going to heaven when this life is over. That hell's real and it's forever but a need to feel accepted, an overly cautious motivation will sometimes cause us to downplay what God is really doing in our life. So how do we overcome this fear of rejection? How do we overcome, how do we get past the fear of rejection? It's gonna sound super cliche, but it's true. So cliche, something you've heard in church over and over again, if you've been in church anytime at all. It's very simple, live for an audience of one. Live for an audience of Jesus, of God, of the person of God alone. That should take care of it. But how does that work, right? If I say that to someone, just live for an audience of one, hallelujah, it'll work out. What does that look like? The first thing is we need to say yes to pleasing God. We need to say yes to doing what God's called us to do. First Kings chapter 22 and verse five, it says, but Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, seek first the counsel of the Lord. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, Jesus says it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That if you want what this world has to offer, if you really want all of the promises of God, if you really want your destiny to be settled in this world, first things first, go to the kingdom. Do what God says to do first. Go with his leading, go with his motivation, go with his purpose for your life first. Don't wait to try to appease somebody and try to finally gain access to a peer group and be accepted. Go do what Jesus says. You know the people that are generally the most accepted in any group are those outliers. Those ones that are on the fringes that just, they kind of seem a little quirky, but you want to be around them for some reason. They're, they're marching to the beat of a different drummer and you just want to kind of get in step with their tune. Those are the folks that are generally the most accepted in our culture. Steve Jobs was a weirdo who for like two years ate nothing but apples. That's weird. It's weird. It probably caused health problems later on. He was a crazy person for most respects, yet everybody wanted to be on that team. There are so many folks that are outliers in life because they've decided that they're gonna do what their calling is, what their motivation is, what their purpose and destiny is, and they don't care if you follow them. 
They don't care if you accept them or approve of them. They're ready to do what they've been placed on planet earth to do and they're gonna see it happen. I wanna encourage you, say yes to God first. I didn't say this joke last service and my wife's gonna kill me, but I think it's hilarious. I deal with acceptance the way Jesus does. You can accept me or go to hell. <laughs> oh, boo, I know, right? I had it written in my notes with a question mark, should I or shouldn't I? Anyway, <laughs> it's a bad joke, I know. The second point there to overcome this fear of rejection is to say no to pleasing people. And this is a big one for most of us. Most of us are so codependent, all we wanna do is please people. There's a great book out there called Codependent No More, and I encourage you to read it. It's a phenomenal book if you have it. But pleasing people seems to be one thing that steals the gas away from many of us in our efforts to accomplish great things. Isaiah chapter 51, 12 and 13 says this, who are they that fear mortal men, the son of men, who are but grass, that you forget the Lord, your maker? Says Isaiah saying, who, who would you fear? Who would you fear mortal men for? They're like the fields of grass. God could mow them down, stomp over them so easily that you reject your maker? You reject the one that's fashioning you? You, you reject the one that has a purpose for you? You reject the one that has a destiny for you? Who are those? Who are you to think that man's opinion or approval matters over the maker of the universe? Galatians chapter one and verse 10. And I'm not trying to win approval of God or of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's a great words from the apostle Paul. That if you're really intent on serving men, my guess is your ability to be a discipled person of Christ is gonna be diminished. If you're gonna be a full on disciple of Christ, eventually you get to the point where you say, you know what? I, I gotta do what God says to do. I can't worry about some weird level of approval. I can't worry about pleasing people. I've got to do what God's called me to do. Where we honestly live for that audience of one, we do what he's called us to, we, we march forth in our purpose, in our destiny, and in our calling, and that we learn to say no to pleasing people. In my life, I can honestly say as a pastor, sometimes it's difficult to not wanna please people. When we first started this church, we've done this outreach a few different times throughout the life of the church, where we've given away NFL tickets. Many of you have been here for that. Big NFL Sunday, we all dress up in NFL gear. We give away NFL tickets to a season game Bears versus Packers that year. When we first did it, I got a bunch of phone calls and emails, local area pastors. How dare you diminish the gospel like that to some gimmick where you're giving away tickets to a, to a football game? How dare you diminish Jesus? How dare you diminish the cross to some worshiping of the NFL? It was never about that. It was always about bringing people into the church who might not normally come to church. Maybe we did entice them, but you know, some of them stayed on as part of our family because of it. Their lives were changed, their marriages were healed, things were restored in their life. To me, it's worth it. A Couple hundred dollars in tickets and some promotion, it's totally worth it. That someone might come in the door and accept Jesus. And if that looks like just some marketing gimmick, you don't understand what the gospel's about. 
Jesus said to go to the highways and the hedges, to go to the byways, to where people were on the fringes and call them in. Who's more on the fringes? Someone hanging out at a bar just trying to watch an NFL game or someone sitting in a pew every Sunday? Who's more on the fringes? Who's more likely to be connected with in an outreach like that? The same year, we did a big Easter egg hunt. We continued to do that year after year. We got calls and letters again. I can't believe it. There you are again, just trying to promote some, some, some scheme on how to get people to church on Easter Sunday. No, it's not about that. It's not about the eggs or the candy or the blow-ups and the bounce houses. It's not about all the money we put into it. It's about people knowing that there's a church in the Quad Cities that loves them for where they're at. That no matter what's going on in their life, no matter what they're, they're in conflict with, that there's a people who love people, who love their community and just want to serve. You know, the funny thing is, some of these pastors, they don't want to talk to me about it, but some of them have done exactly the same thing in the last couple of years. Big Easter egg hunts, giving away football tickets, having Super Bowl parties. I so wanted to call them up and be like, you little snake, but I couldn't do that. Well, my wife wouldn't let me. It's not that I couldn't. I was tempered by my better half. John chapter five and verse 30. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Learn to live for that audience of one. Where you're not, you're not in this life to judge anything for your own merit. You're not in this life to try to win it at, your, at any cost. You're not in this life seeking some kind of selfish approval. You're doing this because you're wanting to please the one who sent you. Listen, Jesus sent us all here with a mission. God sent you here to planet Earth, to the Quad Cities, to this church for a mission and a purpose. Do everything you can to fulfill that and to please the God who sent you. The last thing I want to read today is a quote, and it says this, secure in God's love, I will not surrender my self-worth to the opinions and judgments of others. When I'm rejected, I will not retaliate. When I'm hurt, I will allow God's love to heal me. And knowing the pain of rejection, I will seek to love those who suffer from this anguish. Listen, this is where we kind of cap off this morning. There is a need for approval, it's real, but that approval is really to draw us to the God-shaped void that's in all of our hearts. That no man and no thing is going to fill that hole. That only Jesus himself can fill that void that's in our, that's in our soul. But once we find that secure nature in Christ, that we know first God's love, that we will not ever surrender our will back, or our self-worth, I'm sorry, back to someone else's judgment. That we come to a place that even, even though we become rejected at times and in moments, that we don't look for retaliation. That we come to a place that though we might even feel hurt, that we will allow God's love to heal us. And may we know the fear of rejection, or the pain, I'm sorry, of rejection at times. May we know it to the extent that we learn to help others heal from it that the pain of rejection that we felt, because we all feel it in life at time, one moment or another, that we don't allow this, this pain of rejection to go unused, that we learn to help others heal and cope with the issues of rejection they're feeling. So this morning, I wanna encourage you, live for an audience of one. Learn to say yes to God and no to pleasing people. Come to a place where it's not about a fear of rejection, but it's about 
following his will and purpose for your life, you can overcome fear. You can fear less. Amen?